What a wonderful truth as we gather to lift our voices and sing about how we stand in this death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's really what propels us to do what Andrew shared about, engage our community, love the people around us, and now together as a church, hold up the word of God and remember the significance of this gospel in our life. I want to invite you to remain standing as we are now in Ephesians chapter 4, a brand new series that we're calling Walking Worthy of the Call. Listen now to these first six verses. The Apostle Paul writes, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's stop there. Go ahead and have a seat. This is a, it's fun to finally arrive in Ephesians chapter 4. And uh, what we've been doing since this spring is, is walking through different sections of the book of Ephesians and, and kind of taking a section in the theme of the section and, and really making a series around each of those. And so the first three chapters we've walked through, and you might remember some of what we've covered. We covered the, the uh, reframing God's blessing. We covered from death to life. We've, we've spent a lot of time covering this, this broken down wall, and now, now we've, we've hit this turning point in the book. This turning point where now the Apostle Paul, he begins to directly apply these truths that we've been taught. Now, really, if you were to divide Ephesians into two sections, section one, the first three chapters, is just filling our minds and filling our hearts with the truth of the gospel. And then... Chapters 4 through chapter 6 is taking what has been filling our minds and filling our hearts, and it's saying, this is now how you are to live. Especially chapter 4. Chapter 4, this theme, walking worthy of the calling. Now we're going to start with these first six verses, and I want to set it up for you by, by telling you about uh, maybe the most common memory uh, for me growing up. You see, growing up, many of you guys know this, growing up, I was the oldest of four boys. Four boys, and uh, in, in our home, uh, as four boys living together, uh, you can imagine, we fought a lot. <laughs> as four boys, everything was a competition. Four boys, we were always really kind of wrestling, and usually it was, it was not playful wrestling. Uh, for mo- many of those years, uh, we were not introduced to Jesus Christ. And so for many of those years, we were fighting. It was literally like, I want to hurt you fighting, <laughs> right? Four boys. Now, I had a bit of an advantage. Uh, I was the oldest. That, that helped a lot when it came to fighting. But we fought all the time. And I just can't, I can't tell you how often I heard my parents say things like, can't, can't you guys get along? Or will you guys knock it off? And any, any parent in the room say anything like that to their, their right? We, we fought all the time. 
And I think about my parents and what we put them through as, as kids, right? I think about how difficult it was for them all the time, just constantly repeating themselves over and over again. Why won't you guys act like you like each other? Can't you guys treat each other like your family? Don't you love each other? Those kinds of phrases, those kinds of words. And then I look at today's text. Today's text is going to aim us at unity, and where it's going to land, it's going to land in this spot that reminds us that we have one God and Father who is over all, and who is through all, and who is in all. And I look at the church, and I wonder if sometimes God the Father is thinking what my dad thought, or if he's saying to us what my mom would say. Can't you guys get along? Don't, don't, you, don't you love each other? Would you, would you just act like family? Now, see, what we're going to see today is this. The, the heart of the Father toward his children, toward his church, it is a heart of us being unified. And this heart is expressed in, in our big idea today. We're going to talk for a few weeks about walking worthy of the call. And I want you to see tonight, the big idea this evening is that we, as a church, we walk worthy of Christ when we walk in unity. When we walk in a unity, that's when we demonstrate that we are walking worthy of Christ. Now, this idea of walking worthy of Christ, that's, that's an idea we're going to return to every single week. In fact, in your notes, you're going to find the same phrase over and over again for the next few weeks. And the, the, the phrase is going to be the theme of chapter 4 simply is to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. Now look with me, if you have not opened your Bible yet, look with me at Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. Let's just pick up right at the beginning. Here's what Paul says. Paul says, I therefore... And this word, therefore, it's referring back to all of this incredible truth that we've been marveling at since this spring. We've just been marveling it. Everything that's been done for us in Christ. He says, I therefore, he says, a prisoner of the Lord. We, we've discussed what this means for him to be a prisoner. Here's what he says. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Here's his instruction. And everything else in chapter 4 is going to come back to this idea of walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now, if you're part of the Valley Church family, we've been spending a lot of time in Ephesians in this word walk. There's a good chance you're very familiar with it. But, but maybe, you, maybe you missed that or maybe you're new around here. And so I want to just remind us from the get-go, what does it mean to walk? Is he talking about a physical walk? Is he talking about your stride? Is the Apostle Paul saying you should have some swagger in your step as you, as you walk around as a church family? What is he talking about? When we talk about walking, we're talking about how you lead your life. The phrase walk is one of Paul's favorite words, and it simply means to lead a life. Walking in this sense, it's your, listen, it's your lifestyle. It's your, your ethic. It's your moral compass. When he says walking, he's talking about your, your overall character of the way you live your life. Simply put, he, he means to live. When he says walk in a manner worthy of the call, here's what he says. He says, live in a manner worthy of the call to which you've been called. Now, this is 
a phrase we've seen a number of times. We've seen it in chapter 2. You remember chapter 2 from death to life? Uh, Chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 says this. It says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins. Here it is. In which you once walked. He says, you were dead. And in your dead spiritual state, you, your, your manner of living, you walked. And it was defined by trespasses and sins. It was defined by your and my, our rebellion against God. And then if you continue in chapter 2 and you get to verse 10, after we've been saved by grace through faith, after we have been made alive and raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places, you get to verse 10 and it says this. It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, here it is, that we should walk in them. Our manner of life, it's gone from death, sin and trespass, and it's got, now it's gone to life. And now we live in a brand new way, doing good work instead of evil work. This is the idea of walk. But, but Paul here, he says, I want you to walk, and then he uses this word, worthy. Worthy. He says to, to walk in a manner Worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Do you feel do you feel like you're worthy of Christ? Do you feel like you're worthy to, to emulate Christ? I mean, this is kind of a tension point, right? Because if we understand everything we've covered up to this point, there is not one of us that in and of ourselves would stand up before God and say, Hey, I think I got a pretty good shot at walking worthy. You know, I'm a pretty moral person. I'm a pretty good person. I think that, you know, I can be approved by God and so that I can accomplish something that shows that I am worthy. We read this word worthy and we might get it a little confused. This is not saying that we should walk worthy of our salvation as in we can earn it. This is saying we walk or we live differently. We walk worthy of the gift that's been given We walk worthy of the call that's been placed upon our life. We walk worthy of the Savior Christ who has saved us. In fact, this word worthy, it's an interesting word. It's the kind of word that was used if you were weighing out a scale. And on that scale, you're trying to make it even. And so on that scale, what you would do is you would bring the scale to equilibrium and one side of the scale would match the other side of the scale. And if, if they matched, if they're equal, in that moment, you would use the word worthy. What the Apostle Paul is calling us to today, what he's urging, what he's pleading, if, if you have been here these last few months and you have marveled at all of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ that has been given to you, not because of what you've done to earn it, not because of anything that merited it in and of yourself, but if you've simply received Christ in his death and resurrection, now the Apostle Paul is urging that your life It comes to equilibrium. It comes into balance. And that counterweight is Christ. To walk worthy of the call that you've received is to walk in a lifestyle that matches the life of Christ. In fact, Paul uses this word urge. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he uses the same word. It's translated, uh, I appeal to you. 
Romans 12, 1, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. This is the same exact idea. To walk worthy of your calling is to take your life and look at all of the mercy of God that you've received through the death and resurrection of Jesus and then take your life and to climb up onto the altar and say, this life is yours, Lord. Not to die, but to be a living sacrifice. This is the idea of walking worthy of the calling. This is... This is what Paul is urging you to do. This is what Paul is pleading with you to do. This is simply Paul's appeal, listen very carefully, to every person who has trusted in Jesus Christ. He's pleading with you to let the scale balance out that your life would look like Jesus's. And over the next few weeks, we're going to we're going to examine different ways that the scale is meant to even out. And tonight, in particular, we're going to talk about how this scale is meant to even out in the way we relate to each other, specifically around the issue of unity. Church, I want you to see tonight that we are called to walk in unity. We are called to be united. United in doctrine, united in the truth, we are called to be united in our affection for each other, united in care for one another, united in the way we look after one another and the way we love each other. We are called to this kind of unity. Ephesians 4, verses 2 and 3. Let's continue. Here's what he says. He says, with all humility. This is describing how we, how we walk worthy of the call. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, he, here he uses four descriptions of what this looks like. He, he, he lays it out for us. And in these descriptions, there's two, I guess, key ideas that I want us to uh, allow to, to, to saturate our mind. Here, here's the first one. Our unity, it's made evident by mutual care. Unity is not something we say we have. Uh, unity is something that we show we have. Unity is seen, uh, I, I just want us to take a second, look around at the church family here. And I know there's people that watch online, but, but, but moments like this, I, I want us to understand this is something for a local church. Look around at your church family. Take a minute. It's awkward, but do it. <laughs> Unity is displayed by the mutual care you show for the people in this church. We, we don't say we are, we're united because we go to the same church service. We don't say we're united because we like the same worship songs. We are united in the way we care. Look at this. Look at these descriptions. Verse 2. With all humility. Humility. Biblically defined, humility is thinking of others before you think of yourself. Humility, biblically defined, is looking after the needs of others more than you look after your own needs. 
See, see, for us to be demonstrating, making evident our unity, that means when we're gathered together, we're actually engaging with one another, not so that we can share with others what we want or what we need or what our agenda is, but rather we're engaging with each other saying, how can I care for this brother or sister that's in front of me right now? How can I encourage them? How can I listen to them? How can I pray for them? Do they have a need that maybe I can meet later this week? We are unified in our humility when we think of others rather than simply think of ourselves. That's humility. Secondly, it says with with gentleness. And look at the modifier here. It's with all humility. And that modifier, it extends to gentleness. With all gentleness. Now, simply put, this means in the church, you're not meant to be a bully. This kind of falls out of humility because if you're humble, you're not, you're not bending every situation to get your way. But then if you're gentle, that means maybe you do have something that you need. Maybe you do see a need in someone's life. Maybe you even have a correction to give to someone in their life. But you're gentle. It's the idea of you're your, your soft toward them. You're not just trying to be direct and hard and forthright. There, there are places for that, certainly. But, but as our default mode with each other, we should be gentle. A church that is gentle with each other is a church that is going to find a lot of unity. A church that is gentle with one another is a church that is slow to condemn one another slow to look down at one another, it's quick to actually understand the weaknesses that one another have. Which, which leads right into the next description. It says, with all humility and gentleness, and then it says, with patience. Patience. This is, <laughs> this is the idea of to suffer long. In the church life, here's what it looks like. We're all trying to figure out how to follow Jesus. None of us are doing it perfectly. And pretty regularly, we, spiritually speaking, we step on each other's toes. We offend one another. We sin against each other. And when we find ourselves sinned against, when we find our toes bruised, we don't just say, I'm done with you. We actually look at what God's doing in their life. We trust that as we're patient with them, God will shape them, God will grow them, God will mature them in the same exact way that God is shaping us and growing us and maturing us. We're patient. We're willing to, I love the word, suffer long. That's what the word patience is, long-suffering. We're willing to suffer their immaturity for a long period of time. And they're willing to suffer ours. Finally, actually, it lands in this last phrase, bearing with one another in love. I mean, if long-suffering and patience isn't enough, this word bearing, it's, it's the idea of enduring. <laughs> uh, to endure something is to, to last out the suffering, right? Like, when we think about enduring, I think about the last time I, I went on a long run, and as I finished that run, it was like everything I could do to continue to run, to continue to keep one foot moving in front of the other. Lungs are burning, legs are jello, and you keep pressing forward. You endure till the end. This is, 
This is what we sign up for when we sign up to be a church. This is what it looks like to, to show our unity. We don't simply say we're unified because we like the way one person preaches or we're unified because we, we like a, a certain church and its feel. We, we are unified. We show our unity in our mutual care for one another. In fact, that, that verse, it's crescendo, is bearing with one another. You see it? In love. Here's the reality. You are surrounded by Christians who are in different places in their maturity. And they are trying to figure out how to follow Christ. And, and here, here it is. I'm just going to summarize so much of the Christian life right now. Here it is. It is messy. <laughs> Can we just admit that for a moment? It's messy. And because it's messy, we mess up. Our unity is demonstrated when we mess up the way we treat each other. The description we have here, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, this is how we show our unity. Just based on our culture right now, I would argue that the COVID pandemic was a test of the church's unity. Everyone had a different opinion. Everyone had a different idea. And everyone felt that their opinion and their idea was right. And in that, it was a battle to care more about each other, to love each other, to bear with one another in love, rather than to care for ourselves. And, and you know, I can't say how thankful I am. How so many people in our church... We battled for that unity. I saw people put to death their opinion, their desires, their political agenda. I saw people in this church do that to love each other and to maintain unity. What a test. See, our, our, our unity, it is, it is made evident by our mutual care. But there's one other aspect of this I want you to see. Secondly, our unity, it is maintained by us and made in Christ. Maybe you've heard this observation before, but but there's a beautiful truth that you and I, we are not responsible for creating unity. That's already been made. Look at verse 3. It says that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, this, this phrase maintain, it's got kind of two aspects to it. The first aspect is we maintain, which means we, we keep, we don't create. This is that idea that, that unity, it's given to us by Christ. Thank goodness Christ doesn't say, hey, you messy group of people, get together, make a church, and figure out how to be unified. Instead, you know what he does? He says, I'm going to bring you together. I'm going to unify you around the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now you have unity, and now you have to keep it. So we keep it. We don't create it. But here's the second aspect. The first is we keep, not create. But the second is we keep not destroy. See, Christ has given us this unity. He's given us this firm foundation, which is himself, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection. He has made us one as the church. And we have to be careful with what he's given us. We have to be careful not to destroy it. 
how do you how do you destroy the unity that you've been given? Go back up to verse two. Do the opposite of what was just given to us in verse two. Instead of being humble, we destroy the unity when we do what? When we when we act in arrogance, when we're full of pride. Instead of being gentle, I can't tell you how many people I know that they do not go to church. And the reason they do not go to church is because someone was a bully to them in the church. Because someone was unwilling to be gentle. Unity destroyed. Well, what about lacking patience? How quickly can we destroy unity if we're quick to get angry and quick to give up on each other? And then finally, without a willingness to bear with one another in love, we so quickly destroy See, we ma- maintaining means we keep, not create, but it, secondly, it means we keep, not destroy. And we keep this unity, here it is, in the bonds of peace. Th- this idea of the bond of peace, the term bond, it's used of creating and building a defensive wall to protect you against enemies. The same phrase, it's used of stitching clothing together to make a single garment. It's bonding them together so they're one unit. This same term, bond, it's used of a family relationship, the bond between a, a parent and their child. It says we're to maintain the bond, and here it is, of peace. You guys remember the word Peace. I want you to, if you have your Bible open, I want you to turn back to Ephesians 2. Let's remember this peace that we have. The peace that we have actually has a name. Ephesians 2, verses 13 and 14. Here's what it says. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he, Christ, he himself is our peace. He is our peace. He has made us both one, Jew and Gentile, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. When we talked about peace, we talked about that this peace is an absence of war or hostility so that a community can thrive. Now when we get to chapter 4, and it tells us to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, we are recognizing that this bond of peace has been given in Christ. This peace, we have no more grounds for hostility. And, And listen here, it says that we are to be eager to maintain that. This takes it and it elevates the expectation. Instead of simply saying, you know, uh, we've got unity. We've got unity and, you know, I I keep the unity by coming to church and I, I do my worship thing and then I leave. This actually says we are to be eager. We are to be eager to care for each other in such a way that we demonstrate what Christ has done for us. This is this... It's not passive, it's proactive. It's eager, it's a zealous desire to care for each other with the love that we've received in Christ. This is what we see. We, we are called to walk in unity. Uh, to treat each other in ways that maintain this unity. So, I'm not going to make you look around the room again. But, but let me ask you, when you walk into 
your church family setting? What is, what is it that fills your mind and what is it that fills your heart? When you come into this setting, are you looking for how you can uh, receive? How you can receive attention from others? How you can receive an, a listening ear? Or, or when you come in, are you looking for how you can care? This is the call. This is the call that we, we have. And how we walk worthy of this call is when we are eager to maintain this unity. But, but let's, let's go even deeper. Let's, let's talk not just about what it looks like for us to maintain this unity. I want us to look at the, really the foundation of the unity. This foundation is demonstrated in these next few verses. See, our unity, secondly, our unity, it reflects God's triunity. Our unity, it reflects God's triunity. Now, every week I, I have a friend in our church, and she uh, looks over my sermon notes, and she edits them because oftentimes what I'm thinking and what my fingers type are not the same. And, uh, and so sometimes if, you know, if I just send it to print without an edit, it, it comes out kind of funky. And this week she actually she messaged me. She, she said, Mike, is triunity a word? <laughs> is it a word you've used before? It's not a very common word, but theologically speaking, yeah, it is. Absolutely. Theologians love to talk about God in his triune nature or the triunity of God. When we're talking about God being triune, what are we talking about? We're talking about the very essence of who God is. God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Completely equal, but yet distinct. We're talking about God being three persons, yet one essence. This is what the ancient creeds have long declared. This is who God is. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in his triune nature. And listen to this. God in his triune nature, Father, Son, and Spirit, have existed for all eternity in perfect unity. They're never jealous at each other. They're never vying for attention. They're never selfish toward one another. God as a triune God is one essence, three persons, and has always existed in perfect unity. And, and as a triune God, he has made this brand new this brand new thing, this, this one new man, this new man that is called what? The church. And just like my mom and dad would be like, can't you guys act like family? <laughs> you know what he's, he's called the church to? To act like family. To act like our, our example, which is God the Father, Son, and Spirit, who are perfectly unified. Let me show you what I mean. Let me show you how we treat each other. And, and the, the way we treat each other is actually us declaring what we believe about God. Look at verses 4 through 6. It says, there, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. It says, one Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. 
Now, most of our theology has been handled in the first three chapters of Ephesians. But, but in this moment, when the Apostle Paul, being inspired by the Spirit of God to write these sacred words, when he pens this, he actually, he kind of, he veers off and just to really what, what could amount to a, almost a hymn. He, he, he just starts to, to really declare this unity that exists in the triune God and that flows to us. Just look at these words again. Let's, let's just walk through each of these phrases, the sevenfold oneness that's described in these few passages, a few verses. First thing it says, there is, there is one body. Well, those of you that have been with us through the book of Ephesians, you know what this one body is. This one body is what? It is the church. There's one body, the church. This has already been established. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. It says, And he put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Verse 23, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. If you remember last week, this is part of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. That they would be filled with the fullness of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16, it says that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Who are the both? Jew and Gentile brought together in one body. One body is the church. Ephesians chapter 3, notice every single chapter. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, it says, which was not made... No, this is the mystery which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of, here it is, the same body. You realize how significant the church is? Ephesians 1, it's mentioned. mentioned. Ephesians 2, it's mentioned. Ephesians 3, it's mentioned. Ephesians 4, it's mentioned. Guess what you can expect the next few chapters. Did you realize the significance of there being one church? There's not a, Jew, a church for Jews and then a church for Gentiles. There's not a church for men and then a church for women. There's not a youth church and an adult church. There's not a church for those who are black and a church for those who are white. There's not a church for those who are rich and those who are poor. Listen very carefully. You need to understand this is so significant because this reflects the unity of the triune God. There is one church, one body. The second description says that there is one spirit. This is speaking of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Again, we, we have seen the Spirit. We could talk about the Spirit and the work of the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 1. It says the moment we hear and believe the good news that we are sealed by the Spirit. But I want you to look at Ephesians 2 verses 18 and verses 20, verse 22. It says, For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. The Spirit is, it provides through Christ this, this access to the Father. Verse 22, it says, In Christ, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In Christ, 
The Spirit of God is building us together to be a dwelling place for the Father. There, there is one Spirit that is active in each of us. Now, let's just, let's just apply this for a moment. When we think about that earlier passage, when it talked about how we are to have humility toward each other and be gentle toward each other and be patient toward each other and bear with one another in love, you know what that means? That means I am able to do that because I have the same Spirit of God in me working out the fruit of the Spirit in my life that you have in you. And so when we have conflict, when we have tension, when we have animosity, guess what? We are like meant to be like magnets being pulled at each other so that we can be reconciled. There's one spirit, and that spirit's in you, and that spirit's in me. This is one body, one spirit, and then it says, one hope. The text continues. It says, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. This is the call that we what we're talking about here. This is the, the call that we have, walking worthy of the call. This makes me think about Ephesians 1, verse 18. It says that we have Paul's prayer in chapter 1. He says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, that what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What, what is this call? This, this one hope is... It's actually our salvation. This hope that all of us share, it's not a hope that, you know, I'm going to get this new job or that I'm going to get married to this person or that the Astros are going to lose every game in the World Series. That's not the hope that we're all called to. I'm not bitter at all. The hope that we're all called to is the hope of eternal salvation. It's this, this hope that says, well, whatever happens in this life, I think about that, that hymn that we've been singing, our moral life might pass away, right? But we have this hope that extends beyond the last breath that we take here on earth, and it extends for all eternity. This is the one hope that we have. This hope is an eager expectation that God will fulfill all of his plans and it's ho- the hope of this call. The, the hope of this call is an invitation. It's a summons. We've been invited into this hope. We've been invited into this call. So if you're tracking here, we've got, we've got this one body. We've got one spirit. We have one hope. And then verse 5, one Lord. Who, who is the one Lord? The Lord Jesus Christ. This one Lord is uh, described in Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23 again. It says, And he, God the Father, put all things under he, Jesus, his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ is the one who rules and reigns. King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the one who holds all authority in heaven and on earth. He, he is the, the undisputed champion who reigns and rules sovereignly over all of the cosmos. This is the one Lord that you serve and that I serve. Let's circle back to the application. 
What does this mean for the way we treat each other? If you serve the Lord Jesus, and if I serve the Lord Jesus, that means we should really consider the way we care for each other and the way we work together. So we have this, this, this one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, and then it says one faith. One faith. What is this faith? This faith is Christ alone. Christ alone. You could actually, instead of that, you could even write the gospel. Our one faith is the gospel. Ephesians chapter 1. I I know we're bouncing back and forth, but I want us to see contextually, this is all of what's filling Paul's mind here. Ephesians 1 verse 13, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, here it is, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, or had faith in him, you were sealed with the promised spirit. This one faith is that we all, we all come together saying one thing. Jesus died and rose again. Stephen just had us sing the song that we're learning. There is one gospel. (laughs) That's it. There's none other. Well, let's continue. The last two. One baptism. One baptism, Paul writes, this, this likely means our union with Christ. Now, in the context here, he's not really talking about water baptism. That's not really in view. Neither is spirit baptism. That might be a little more likely as we're placed into this one body through spirit baptism. But but likely what he's talking about is this, what I would call the metaphysical reality that when we trust in Jesus in his death and resurrection, we have been buried with Christ. And we've been raised with him. Think about Ephesians chapter 2. When, it, when we talk about this new life that we have, it says that what, what has happened for us in Christ, it says that he has made us alive together with him. He has raised us with him. And he has seated us with him in the heavenly places. This is our union with Christ. We, we have experienced everything that, spiritually speaking, everything that Christ experienced physically, we have experienced spiritually. This is that that one baptism into Christ. And then here's the pinnacle of it all. The the pinnacle is that there is one God, the Father. Verse 6, it ends, it says, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Here's, Here's where he ends. He says, we're all part of the same family. We're all part of the same family. We're all part of the family of those who have been redeemed. We all share in the same father, which means we all share in the same family. And in this family, this means we have one God who is, first of all, he is over all of us. He is the one who rules over the entirety of the church. It says that he is through all. This is means that, that he is the one through his spirit that is working through every single one of us. I kind of love what happened last night in the parking lot as a picture of this. Because the same spirit was working through every one of us as we were handing out candy and loving on people and meeting people and encouraging people. His spirit was there working through us all. And then it says he is in all. He's present with you. He's present with you. He's present with me. 
See, the point of all of this, we walk worthy of Christ. The, the scale, it balances. We, when, when we walk worthy of Christ, we walk worthy of Christ when we walk in unity. This is the point of Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. This is the call that we have. Now, I, I want to end. I want to end by maybe applying this I, I'm hoping to, to shoot a dart right at a bullseye in every one of our hearts. And here's what the bullseye is. Is there anyone in this church family that you have bad blood with? Is there someone who has offended you? And they're their words cut you so deep. Their actions made you think, maybe it's time to find a new church. And instead of going to them and telling them what they've done and explaining that that hurt and seeking reconciliation, you've been holding on to that hurt. And you've been allowing it to cause disunity. You avoid them. You don't serve with them. You do your best not to talk to them. You, you, you sit as far away from them as possible. You, you make sure you don't ever go to the service that they go to. And you're holding on to it. Or, or maybe you've been the offender. And maybe in your pride, you've been unwilling to confess it to them. You've been unwilling to go to them humbly and say, I was wrong. I was arrogant. I was selfish. I was mean. I was rude. I was jealous. Uh, I was prideful in my actions, and so I was gossiping about you. I, I was selfish in my actions, and so I, I did this my way, even though I know it would offend you or leave you out or hurt you. Whatever it looked like, in, in your pride, you've been unwilling to be transparent and be vulnerable and be bare. Is there anyone that you have bad blood with? And Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, he speaks about coming and, and presenting an offering to the Lord. He says, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and, and while you're there at the altar, you remember that your brother has something against you. He says, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. See, see for Jesus, our, our worship our worship is impacted by the way we treat each other. It's impacted by the unresolved conflict that we might have with one another. This is such a big deal that Jesus says, leave the worship service, go, make amends. Seek forgiveness, offer forgiveness, make it right. Then, then come worship. 
See, I share this because we're, we're about to do something really significant as a church. We're going to share at the Lord's table. And in this moment, when we take the bread and we break it, we represent Jesus' body broken. And when we take the cup, we recognize his blood spilled. But I want you to remember, he did this so he could create one new united man, the church. He did this so that his triunity would be, be reflected in the church's unity. So I'm actually going to open the table. But if I happen to shoot that dart and it landed in the bullseye of your heart, I'm going to ask you to pass on communion tonight. I'm going to ask you to pass, and here's what I'm actually going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to pass, and then between today and tomorrow evening when our church gathers for our annual meeting, I'm going to ask you to go and Find, out your, find your brother or sister and make amends so that tomorrow night when we gather for worship as a whole church, not just our different services, but when our whole church gathers together, then you can come, pick up that, those elements, and you can share, maybe even sitting next to the person that you have made amends with as a picture of the unity that we don't make that's been given to us in Christ, but is a picture of the unity that we maintain. And here's why we maintain it. Because we're called to walk in a manner worthy of our call. So with that said, the tables are now open. If you'd like to come and collect the elements, please do. After you do, take them back to your seat. And then after everyone has collected the elements, I'll come back up and we'll share in communion together. And we'll continue our worship service. The table's now open. Father, I thank you for the unity that you have made for us. It's not a unity that we need to make ourselves, but but you have given it to us freely. And you did it at great cost. We recognize that the unity we have is it's actually reflected in this moment when we break the bread, recognizing we're all part of one body, your body. As we drink the cup, recognizing we all share in this one new covenant, the covenant, it's the gospel. It's, it's by Christ alone that we're saved. And Father, we thank you for moments like this when we can reevaluate our hearts toward our brothers and sisters. Father, I pray for this church family. I pray that you would, by your spirit, work in, in such a transformative way to lead us, not just on a night like tonight, but, but every, at every opportunity to maintain unity, to seek forgiveness, to grant forgiveness, to, to live in that kind of freedom. And I pray, Lord, that it would be such a reflection of the, the freedom we have in Christ. And ultimately, Lord, I pray it would be a reflection of the church being unified, reflecting your triunity, Father, Son, and Spirit.
And so, Lord, we pray this with grateful hearts, thanking you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's recorded in the scripture that Jesus says this is his body, broken for you. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Just remember. In the same way, he says, this cup is his blood, the new covenant. It is blood shed on our behalf. He says, whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember.